Jimmy. <laughs> You're gonna fight against when this balloon of yours goes up. Forces of anarchy, wreckers of law and order. See? Communists, Maoists, Trotskyists, Neo-Trotskyists, Crypto-Trotskyists, Union leaders, Communist Union leaders. <laughs> See? Atheists, agnostics. Long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government Okay, hi, Dan. Um, so you're here to talk to us about uh, Emil Zola today. Um, so the first question is, uh, well, could you maybe give us a bit of a, a character sketch of uh, Emil Zola and uh, what, maybe why you're interested in him and fascinated by him? Well, I I'm came to Emil Zola really because uh, I'm interested in theatrical naturalism. Uh, because naturalism, which emerged in the last third of the 19th century, uh, is kind of the most important influential theatre movement uh, probably since Shakespeare, maybe since the Greeks, and uh, it's extremely important, and I'm writing a book about it, so I wanted to find out a bit more about the kind of context for it. Zola is very important for that context. So I started reading his novels a bit dutifully, and uh, actually there's, there's a lot of those there. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of those, but but discovered they they were actually completely amazing. So I got very interested in 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 Zola. So. A character sketch of him. Well, uh, he's so he's born in eighteen forty, and the reason why I think that's quite important for him, sort of politically and philosophically, is actually what that means is that uh, he is born while France has a constitutional monarchy. Uh, when he's eight, there's a revolution that gets rid of the monarchy, and there's a four-year experiment in in a republic, a democratic republic in France, which is then eliminated by a coup. So effectively, his formative years are seeing a brief emergence of, of a kind of broadly left-wing republican democratic form of government. And then he spends what we would now call his teenage years under the Second Empire, which is a very conservative, reactionary uh, uh, period of French um, government and history. Yeah, and his the uh, Rogan Macar um, series of novels document that exactly, exactly. Yeah, all so twenty of them, I think it is. Is it about? Yeah, it is twenty exactly. Yeah. And he and he basically formulates the idea for the novel just of, of that novel sequence just as the Second Empire, just before the Second Empire collapses, and uh, he starts writing them. Uh, in 1870, as they collapse, uh, as the Second Empire collapses, and in a sense, part of what the novel is about is trying to say, how on earth did we get to this terrible state? Uh, and so that's what the twenty novels of the Rougon Macar kind of do. <laughs> so it's like, why is why is why is France get effectively messed up? Yeah, and 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 also because you know the Franco-Prussian War, which is the the, the immediate cause of the uh, of the collapse of the Second Empire, was meant to be France would kind of you know muzzle the the bulldog of mm-hmm. Germany very quickly, put it back in its place, and in fact, the completely opposite happens. Yeah, the Germany collapsed like a souffle, France. Yeah, uh, yeah, completely, and you know, in a month. I mean, literally, mm-hmm. they lose a war in a month, which is kind of humiliating by most standards. And it leads to, you know, well, I mean, probably the history of it is still being felt in a sense. The French-German axis in Europe is still partly about that rivalry at the time. But certainly the Third Republic, which is the form of society that that, that replaces 
uh, Second Empire is is absolutely haunted by uh, basically why we should never trust Germany. And not everybody thinks that, of course, but you know a lot of people are very suspicious and nervous about Germany. And also, what was wrong in the French character that meant we could be kind of ridden over so uh, so quickly? And actually, Zola is part of that as well. That's partly what the Rougar Macar are trying to investigate. Yeah, and he he wrote the Rougar Macar uh, cycle of novels. Well, it took him a long time to write it because it's 20 novels, but it, a lot of it was written after the actual period. So it wasn't like sort of a journalistic impression of the period, or was some of it? No. I mean, he writes it between 1870 and about 1893 or 4. Um, so he so actually he writes pretty much a novel a year. Uh, but, he's, but the last novel is kind of set in the... I, I guess in the early 1870s. So, so he's always about 20 years behind. behind. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But, yeah. yeah. So um, then, so Zola is kind of fated as a, an exponent of uh, of naturalism, yeah. right? Which is one of your sort of specialties, Dan. Um, I'm wondering how would you, or would you even distinguish between uh, sort of the novelistic and literary naturalism that Zola did and say maybe theatrical naturalism? Because I know Zola, you know, did, did theatre, um, mm-hmm. um, but he um, he was also, you know, how would he say compared to, say, an Ibsen, you know? Was... Yes, so Zola's, Zola's naturalist project uh, is... I mean, the, the, the key thing to it, at least in the way he sets it out when he's at his most programmatic, which is in the sort of first, first 10 years of, of creating this stuff, is that uh, naturalism is about using scientific methods to write novels. Um, and, uh, and so that distinguishes him from a more general realism. Because as he puts it in, a, in the experimental novel, which is his kind of most famous, most sort of, I guess, kind of philosophically developed essay about what naturalism is, um, he makes a very big distinction between observation and experiment, because he basically sort of says, I mean, any fool can observe, but what you need to do is you, you draw a hypothesis from your observation, and then, like a scientist, under controlled conditions, you investigate that by conducting an experiment and the experimental novel is a novel that is an experiment in itself so yeah i mean he says this in um, so the in the uh, the very very famous uh, preface i think to Teresa Rakan, yeah he gives his kind of manifesto of naturalism and i think in that he says he compares himself to like a surgeon working on corpses yeah. which is a very sort of evocative image but it puts him in he's trying to make <laughs> He's trying to approach the novel in scientific terms, or that's what he's, that's the novelty. He's, that's his innovation, if you like. Yeah, that's right. And his, um, I mean, part of his part of his research for as he's developing naturalism is he reads um, Claude Bernard's book, An Introduction to the Study of Experimental Medicine, which is a, a very strong defense of the idea that medicine is, should be a scientific practice and not kind of right. merely kind of trial and error observational practice by doctors saying I've worked with my patients for 40 years I know what's good for them Claude Bernard is, is absolutely trying to say no what you should do is you should test all your observations test your hypotheses and come up with properly verified understanding of how medicine works and 
Zola reads that. I think that book is published in 1865. Uh, Teresa Rakan is, you know, is only a, a year or two after that. So he's very quickly taking on those medical metaphors. Uh, well, in fact, I don't think you'd call them metaphors. I think he would literally, he literally says that a novel is an experiment and it, and it generates genuine scientific insights. That's quite the claim, that isn't it? I mean, <laughs> you know, because I mean, I'm sure a scientist uh, or even a philosopher of epistemology or an empiricist would say literature doesn't do that. Literature yeah. doesn't, you know, is not. It, it doesn't. It doesn't do experiments. It doesn't do. It doesn't come up with sort of replicate replicable observations and, and things like that. But yeah, also is so. I'm wondering, I guess, then, then is. Wow, do you think he's a success in this sort of like uh, synthesis of literature and science that he's trying to? Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, you're you're right. Of course, it's it's quite a claim, and and it has been sort of it it was it was rubbished as a claim at the time, and it's rubbished regularly ever since. And clearly, there are things about it that seem implausible. I mean, he has he has some defences. Of it, I mean, he does address some of the obvious objections to it. I mean, one obvious objection is, um, you know, you're not experimenting on a thing in the real world; you're experimenting on things you've made up. Uh, <laughs> right. And, yeah. so that, and that's obviously a a, a problem. And he's, he has a half of a defence of that by saying that when a scientist experiments, they are creating under artificial conditions something that isn't sort of, doesn't happen naturally, but is now being produced, it's being induced in the laboratory. So he's kind of saying that. The thing that's complicated is that Zola is a, Zola is a systematic thinker in some ways, in that, well, as we've said, you know, he writes 20 volumes of the Rugal Makar, and he's planned that almost from the beginning that it's going to be twenty. He thinks he, he wants it to cover every aspect of, uh, of of the Second Empire, from the mines to the laundries to the railways to the markets and so on. So on that level, he's very systematic, but he's also very unsystematic in that his reading is quite slapdash we would probably say as as academics <laughs> he's not a very he's not a very thorough reader he's uh, he's a little bit credulous i think about some of the things that he reads so he you know claude benard is actually a really great source but he reads some very peculiar people who have things that weren't even widely believed at the time and then he also doesn't always completely systematically describe what his ideas are about. So he doesn't really say what he thinks the mechanisms are that means that a novel could generate those, insult, uh, those insights. I suppose I would, there are two things I would say. I mean, one would be that he seems to have some sort of commitment to the idea that there must be kind of laws of thought that mean that as long as you are sort of that people can spot when you're being accurate in a novel and you're being kind of logical and reasonable and there's a there's a sort of he seems to think he never actually says this but he seems to think that uh, a, a satisfying aesthetic structure in a novel is 
a recognition of a sort of logical structure in the world. And that's obviously an odd claim. But then I think of Aristotle, who says something a little bit like that. You know, there's a point in the poetics. poetics, yeah. Yeah, he says that the difference between tragedy and history is tragedy, uh, history tells you what did happen and tragedy tells you what must happen. And and by that, I think you, you don't need to make a huge claim about that, except that, you know, when we watch when you or I watch a TV drama and you go, oh, they never do that, You're ki- and you, you kind of lose your interest in it, that's kind of what Aristotle is talking about. And I suspect that may be what Zola is talking about as well. If we don't recognise the sort of causal truth of a set of relationships, then actually we, we lose aesthetic interest in it. So that's one thought. And then the second thought, I think, would be that he may have some sort of commitment to the idea that uh, a novel is a bit like a sort of vast thought experiment, you know, that that you can test ideas in on the, on the kind of test bed of your own mind. Yeah, so that's a good place to talk about uh, your research on uh, naturalism, where you talk about the... Um you look at uh, sort of Zola in the context of uh, philosophy of mind, I guess, yeah. and the philosophy of the theatre. So I was wondering, could you maybe talk to that or, or maybe um, explain what are the sort of philosophical implications of what uh, Zola is doing? I mean, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think, um, I suppose, it, well, I, so I wrote an article about, uh, exactly about the, about the sort of philosophy of mind that's at work in naturalism. And it's trying to take seriously what Zola says, because there, there tends to be a, a bit of a sense that people go, Zola was just sort of trying to make a name for himself and making big claims. Um, but he, I suppose he seems to be trying to advance a kind of, physicalist reduction, a kind of materialism that says that uh, the, that we basically don't really need to look to mental processes to explain anything that happens, that everything can be reduced to, I suppose, to brain processes. Oh, the or, third person. Yes, yeah, exactly. Which is the currency of the novel, I guess, in a way, it, isn't it? That's right. And he... Um, and so it's an attempt to kind of think through how plausible that is actually, how plausible Zola's description of his novels is as a description of his of his novels, and of course actually of the theatre as well, the naturalist uh, theatre, because um, one thing I'm doing the, in the uh, essays, I try and look at a couple of passages from the novels, and it does seem as if mental processes seem to be causally efficient um, in in the way he's describing them. You know, they, I cite a passage where somebody uh, who plans to kill his wife's husband sees his wife's husband lying there and thinks, I could, I could crush his head right now, I could kill him, but then thinks, oh, no, I think I'm going to be discovered if I do that, uh, so I'll do it another time. And that seems to be a process of 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 noticing and choosing and recognizing and 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 so on that all, that all seem to be kind of mental um yes yeah, so is that then is it then the case that there's a kind of in zola in the, in these novels in particular i guess 
is uh, is there does the sort of the old philosophical problem of free will and determinism play out in some way? And if so, yeah. what is Zola saying about it? Well, I the sort of tentative conclusion I come to, and it is really very tentative, is that. Uh, rather than think that Zola is is sort of absolutely defiantly insisting on a kind of physicalist reduction, that we could partly see the naturalist novel as an experiment to see how possible it is to narrate the world with all the kind of richness and thick description that a novel offers without without a kind of recognisable, kind of causally efficient notion of the mind or a kind of a broad sense of the mind as being something that's important to the way we live um and so in other words the fact that the novels don't conform to the programmatic statements he makes early in his career shouldn't be considered as a contradiction or a failure but actually the results of the experiment that actually they don't seem to quite work or that that physicalist reduction doesn't seem to be a, a satisfying way of, of seeing the world. Yeah, I mean, and I guess in addition to that, you could it just probably dawned on me that, I mean, what, what is all a sort of, and the naturalists generally reacting to, they're kind of reacting to 19th century melodrama in a way. Yes. And uh, that is kind of what are these sort of experiments in sort of science and research and archiving and all these things there kind of a, a reaction to that or trying to bring it bring theatre and literature and novels down down to earth a little bit yeah I th- and I think there are there are two aspects of that in a way I mean one is uh, theatrically um, the two kind of the great big movements that precede naturalism or at least this is how Zola sees it is romanticism kind of in the 1830s which is very much based on the sort of you know a kind of splendid interiority so it's all about extraordinary figures doing bold deeds and and so on and before that you have the sort of neoclassical tragedy so tragedy written very explicitly in emulation of of the greek model and and again i mean obviously there's a sort of there's a whole kind of theology in there but then is also it's very much locates action entirely in the individual there's no particular sense in which these characters are products at all of their of their culture they just act in the world and they're brought down by their own failures so he's clearly trying on one level to say that actually is not a this is that's not how we see the world now so surely we have to write plays and novels differently from the way we we write them at the beginning of the 19th century or in the 18th century so there's there's that there's also i think um uh he has a very clear sense that under the second empire under kind of both the napoleons actually there was a kind of notional support for science but the the kind of almost the official culture or the general culture tended towards a sort of a vaguely mystical spiritual um supernaturalism that was not kind of officially religious but was generally assumed that there are great powers that we can't possibly understand so zola growing up as i say as a to use the anachronistic term, a teenager in the um, you know in the eighteen sixties, uh, under that kind of thing, he sees science as being part of a kind of republican democratic worldview, 
So, yeah, I mean, that's really interesting because in some way, I think, I guess one of the things that makes Zola uh, distinctive is, 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 I don't know, is it maybe is it this, this kind of straining to sort of unite those two traditions. And sometimes there's these, uh, he's got this urge to be the detective, the materialist, the scientist. Yeah. But on the other, there's this sort of discourse on freedom and human suffering and all yeah. of these sort of traditional romantic things like. Yes, well, I think, yeah, I think that, I mean, that is a huge issue for Zola because obviously the very well you actually asked before about his determinism and actually he's very it's very hard to figure out exactly what he means by determinism because because in in the experimental novel he he does make it very clear that he's not interested in any sort of non-material explanation for phenomena okay so you've got that level of reduction but there's one point where he he tries to distinguish fatalism and determinism, and he's sort of. Could you maybe explain that, Dan? Sorry, just sort of for everybody, for everybody else. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's he he's trying to address the criticism that a deterministic view of the world basically means that everything is preordained, and so we've got no choice over what happens. And he doesn't like that idea, and he says that's fatalism, which is not determinism. And I have to say, I don't entirely understand his explanation, but he seems to be kind of saying that determinism is just saying this is the immediate condition that needs to be the case in order for something to take place, which seems to be saying it's a, I guess it's a necessary but not sufficient condition for any phenomenon. Uh, and that seems to be how he's deter- describing determinism. But actually, then that leaves open the question: Well, where else is, where else is, is causal, is the causal chain being activated? You know, does he actually think there's a free will? If he thinks there's a free will, um, does he actually? Where does he think that's located? Is that not part of a material context? Mm-hmm. So, in other words, I think he is. A, he's tr- he thinks he needs a kind of compatibilism somewhere along the line though he never as far as i have found so far he never quite recognizes that problem so you end up with this oscillation between of course i believe in freedom and and i believe in fighting for justice and and those sorts of things but on the other hand i'm a strict determinist who believes that these we have to understand the world as being a series of physical laws and cause and effect so yeah i wonder does that map on to the the the, the theme of uh, hereditary uh, inheritance in his novel and you know because mm. that seems to be a pressing concern for all yeah. of his characters especially in the rogan Macar cycle because he's, he's in that he's trying to sort of uh, trace the hereditary effects of you know different classes different social spheres yep. different types of market uh, onto his characters Yes, uh, it really is, and he, you know, at one point he 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 literally produces the family tree and shows you how all the kind of genetic markers are. I mean, using a very rudimentary notion of how genetics works, but how they all um, flow down and why this character is behaving in this particular way and 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 so on because of the of their inheritance and the the various temperamental aspects they've got from other members of the family so that's very important um a couple of things worth saying about that i mean one is that he's he's this is also a period where sociology is uh, i think is 
quite widely seen as a candidate for being a science just in the same way as physics. So you know, I think August Comte refers to what his theory is as social physics. So when he says that it's uh, a kind of social and biological history of a family, he I think he means that both of those processes are being captured. So it's not just heredity. The other thing that's complicated about about that is that he's so he's read there's one um i forget the name of the book but there's a, a scientist called prosper lucas who wrote a book in the mid 19th century it was quite a big deal then not much read now um and a uh, big influence on darwin apparently and uh prosper lucas one of the things he has is he, he thinks there is a there is always a map in there is a, a balance in any kind of uh, hereditarian relationship between um, innateness and hereditary, but heredity, by which he means there are things that you have in your personality that are passed from your parents, and there are things that are just you. So some kind of sort of nature via nurture argument, I think. Uh, I th- No, actually, I think not because it, the, I mean the nature thing would be the heredity mm-hmm. but I think you're the innate the the innateness is also it's what you're born with but it's you're just born with it and it seems to come from nowhere this is at least how Prosper Lucas looked at it so in other words there is a kind of non-caused element of your personality and the uh, the thing that's interesting is that in the Rougon Macar, there's um, a character called Dr. Pascal, who is the, one of the clearest examples of uh, Zola writing himself into the sequence, uh, where he because he is basically he's a very good man and he's uh, yeah and he he has conducted a study of the whole Rougon Macar clan and has written about them and traced all their that's at the end one of the towards the end of the cycle is it, as well, that's yeah. the last book but he he's actually introduced in the first book as well and okay. he's talked about in those in those terms and what's interesting is this kind of raises a, a sort of paradox problem for Zola in a way because you know um if he's a if he believes that all these people are products of their of the family tree then Dr. Pascal's attitudes and behavior are just as much a product as anything else, which kind of means Zola is not a not a scientist in the sense of someone who's standing back. He's completely part of the story. So he has these quite weird passages which clearly derive from his reading of Prosper Lucas, where he says, the amazing thing about Dr. Pascal is he was one of those freaks of nature that bears no relation <laughs> to the family that they're part of. And you go, well, you can see he's trying to resolve that that puzzle by using a kind of loophole he thinks he's found in, in Prosper Lucas. Yeah, so I mean, I think one of the... Um... One of the, in terms of, um, in terms of sort of the character driving in that, I'm, I'm wondering in terms of hereditary, and in addition to what you've just said there, do you think, uh, or is it the case that um, people like Darwin is in the background? Do you think people like, say, Spencer are in the background and these sort of new evolutionary ideas are they yeah. out? Um, the, yes and no, I think, with Darwin. There's a really interesting, um, the, the Zola shows a bit of interest in Darwin but actually quite late and I think there's I think there's a kind of historical reason for that that France generally had a bit of a slightly kind of chauvinist 
attitude towards Darwin because they had their own man, Lamarck, from the beginning of the 19th century, who had his own theory of evolution, which kind of answered a lot of the things that that, that Darwin um, tried to explain. Uh, and so for that reason, they, had, they, they were quite slow to take on Darwin. Plus, he was also weirdly translated by this strange woman who tried to convert a lot of his insights into Lamarckian <laughs> insights. And as, as I understand it, and I'm not a great expert in this, but as I understand it, uh, whereas Darwin says that the evolutionary variation happens when you just get you get you get a whole load of genetic variants in one place the one being in the, the creature in the in the in the pack who is has got the genetic um makeup that is best suited to the environment is more likely to be able to reproduce and that's how you start to get you know the the adaptation to uh, you know to the, the fittest, whereas Lamarck seems to think it happens kind of in uh, an individual being's lifetime. So a giraffe stretches their neck to get to the highest branches, and then passes that stretched neck on to their to offspring. Their yeah. Offspring, and uh, and of course we know that doesn't actually happen. So 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 Lamarck has basically been disproved. It takes France quite a long time to disprove that. So, when Darwin starts really entering the um, public discourse in France, it is through people like Spencer, and it's through the idea of social Darwinism, uh, and it and social Darwinism and uh, le struggle for life, as they were called it, <laughs> and they, they they talk about the struggle for liefers, um, uh Is it's basically becomes a kind of insult in the last kind of. 20 years of the, of the 19th century uh, and you get people who write who write plays about it and, 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 and this sort of thing. So Darwin doesn't really end up being a completely um, decisive figure for Zola. I think when he writes Le Debacle, which is his book about the Franco-Prussian War, in his notes he says a bit about how this is going to be a great example of a struggle for life between two different um not quite races, but you know, but between the French and, and and the Germans, and he kind of works that out a bit in the in the way the the novel is written. But he never mentions Darwin in the in the book at all. Yeah. Do you think vitalism, the, the philosophy of vitalism, plays um, uh, um, a, a part in in then? Because I mean, with, with with sort of figures in the eighteenth century in vitalism, you get people like Ravisson, Mande Baron, and ultimately Bergson. Mm. Towards the end, who's also offering this alternative theory of sort of evolution or creative evolution, as he calls it. Um, although I, I, I think he, in the uh, experimental novel, uh, Zola does sort of rubbish repudiate vitalism yeah. and decided that there's this magical creative force alongside inorganic law. Yeah, he does. I mean, he and and you know, he is the the experimental novel is is entirely. He's read Claude Bernard. He's written out his favourite quotes, and he turns them into a uh, into into an essay. And part of that is Claude Bernard says that vitalism is is superstition and leads you to ignor- ignorance and unintentional quackery. He says, and and Zola takes that takes that on. But that but it, but it is kind of interesting because, and I listened to your podcast about this. Oh, with Mark Sinclair, yeah. That's right. And yeah. it's it sort of, it, as I was listening to that, I was thinking, well, actually, in a, in a funny way, 
vitalism might have played a kind of compatibilist role for him between kind of materialism and animism or, or something of that kind but um you said you you thought about germinal, I think. Yeah, germinal. I mean, that's just some observations. I mean, there's some in some of like you know, those germinal is famous for these sort of wonderful crowd scenes, you know, yeah. and uh, where and, and the thing is that the the mine in germinal, in these in sort of mm. northern France where Etienne Lantier is is sort of struggling for life, is uh, yeah. has its own character. Yeah. Also, you know, one other places in the human, you have the, the train has its kind of yeah. has kind of got this animating force where all all the things come together, all the yeah. mechanical parts to create something else, which is a, a type of a vitalism. But it's not something I think he would be that comfortable with, perhaps. No, I mean, I, I mean, I think it's very interesting because certainly as a novelist, there are lots of examples of that where um, he, as it were, sort of animates or humanizes. Um, yeah, the mine is a great example. The train in Betumen is a great one. The market in uh, the belly of Paris is is another good example where these things are sort of treated as these vast kind of monsters in a way. Um, but let me... Uh, I've got German out here. Um, the thing I was thinking, <laughs> Excellent. Because <laughs> um, the thing I was thinking of when you were... When you talked about that is actually the very end... Because the very end of Germinal is really famous, and um, uh, I'll just—it's all right. I'll just oh, read. Please, yeah, yeah, yeah excellent. Yeah, I should say this is Roger Pearson's translation for Penguin Classics. He says uh, uh, this is just a paragraph. Um, the risen April sun now shone from the sky in all its glory, warming the parturient earth. Life was springing from her fertile bosom, with buds bursting on into verdant leaf, and the fields a quiver with the thrust of new grass. Seeds were swelling and stretching, cracking the plain open in their quest for warmth and light. Sap was brimming in an urgent whisper. Shoots were sprouting with the sound of a kiss. And still, again and again, even more distinctly than before, as if they'd been working their way closer to the surface, the comrades tapped and tapped. Beneath the blazing rays of the sun, on this morning when the world seemed young, such was the stirring which the land carried in its womb. New men were starting into life, a black army of vengeance, slowly germinating in the furrows, growing for the harvests of the century to come, and soon this germination would tear the earth apart. Wow, it's wonderful. (laughs) It's just so great. But it's also that there is that sense in which he's, there is a uniting of the natural world, the industrial world, and the human world uh, in a sort of, but I think, I think for him, it's always this sense that progress is the thing he's humanizing if you, or, or that he's mm. he's giving a sort of mm. living quality yeah I mean that's when you read that I was just thinking that's, that sounds very vitalistic I mean the force of yeah. life is running through that you know yeah Except I just I wonder whether it's I wonder whether and I really am just speculating now whether there's a sort of more of a kind of Hegelian thing going on because actually well that would unite freedom necessity well that's and that's because you know I think we're going to talk about Jacques Hughes but one of the things one of the phrases that runs through all of the articles he writes about the Dreyfus affair is the truth is on the march and it's sort of unstoppable and again that's sort of I mean I think it's a rhetorical trick but he he actually does seem to be committed to that idea that 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 lies are contingent, but but truth has a kind of necessity to it and an inevitability to it. And I wonder whether that's actually what's going on at the end of 
Germinal, um, in the sense that he's kind of saying, you know, that that basically the working people are going to get their freedom or their recognition or whatever it is. He's not really a revolutionary, but but they are going to, you know, get get the kind of treatment they deserve. Uh, and then also to some extent, the mine is a kind of image of capitalism as a sort of voracious uh, process of, of development. The train is very clearly about this sort of blind, furious progress. So I, so I wonder whether it's less vitalism and more his sense of a kind of historical inevitability. That would that would uh, that would that would be I think uh, that's a helpful distinction given his sort of you know his express sort of skepticism around vitalism sure. maybe uh, sort of the well I mean much what does Hegel say is that ideas are, are that what drives history I mean mm. Hegel's not Marx you know, in in Marx matter material relations drives history yes that's right so in you know I mean even in sort of the opening line of the uh, Germanal the opening thing scene we have we have get all these crowds coming up out of the mines like all these workers and yeah. it's like it's this sort of life and sort of the organic life flowing alongside. Uh, inorganic matter so mm. that would I mean I'm, I'm sorry maybe rabbiting on there but I guess that would seem to say that there is some kind of he's looking for some kind of synthesis of the organic the inorganic freedom necessity these type of themes and I think that there is there's probably something else going on there which is probably a very distinctive late 19th century concern about crowds um, because you know, I think uh, it's actually after Germinal, but Gustave Le Bon writes his book on the crowd, which is where he, I mean, it's its a very hostile idea of the crowd rather than the wisdom of crowds no, idea. Kierkegaard, mid-1800s mid as well. Right, yeah. okay. Yeah. And, but the, what Le Bon is doing is kind of saying that uh, crowds take on a, a collective personality that is separate from any individual. So it's not even that sort of Weberian idea of a charismatic leader that can do great things to crowds. It's kind of that actually crowds become this sort of, um, he says that they, they become these, uh, these, these kind of environments in which um, terrible ideas can quickly pass around between people I think of Twitter when I when I read that but you know there's that sort of sense I think there was definitely around at the time that there is something in the growth of the metropolis in the 19th century where for the first time you actually see vast numbers of people in relatively small spaces so very unlike lots of people working on a farm but you see sort of a huge bustling crowd in an industrial centre and this is a very very new phenomenon I mean Baudelaire writes about that uh, as well yeah so there must be some kind of anxieties generating along with that because yeah. in say something like the uh, Ladies Paradise yes one of the, some of the some of the things that he's doing is talking about all these sort of people you know using the trains to come into Paris and it's kind of a it's yeah. kind of a new economy it's got a nighttime economy all these things are starting yeah. to happen but I mean with sort of electrification and and, 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 and whatnot and they and in fact the Ladies Paradise uh, has three of its chapters are three openings of sales I think and there are these extraordinary descriptions of the crowds swarming into the the, the ladies paradise the, the, the great big supermarket the malls, yeah, yeah. Um, and in fact there are I'm sure it's in that where there's a bit where somebody's 
um, somebody loses their footing, but they're just carried on by the crush of the crowd. And there's and there's an image there of a sort of historical forces, even though mm. your human agency disappears, but you're still carried forward by by the collective experience. Um, so um, that would be a good place maybe to talk about uh, Jacques, this very, very famous uh, newspaper article. Uh, so, uh, so Zola publishes uh, this article in 1898 in... Uh, Aurore, I think that is the yeah. thing, Aurora. and, and um, it's. Uh, I mean, the title of it says "I accuse," basically. So, mm-hmm. um, I mean, this is probably his best known text. You know, mm-hmm. you know, outside of you know people who are not into his novels or whatever, yeah. everybody would might have heard about what Jacques is. It's so, probably got a claim to be the most famous piece of journalism ever written. Right? I mean, yeah. It right. Might be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? it's, it's right up there. Yeah. 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 But which. Um, where, where does it do you think it fits in in the what Zola has been uh, doing for all these years or is it a culmination of it this sort of this very very overt polemic this sort of really strong declarative political statement well his um, he was a journalist before he was a novelist and uh, he kind of first made his name really as um, really writing about uh, Manet and defending the painter, the painter Manet, who's uh, in the early 1860s had exhibited Déjeuner sur l'herbe and uh, Olympe. So two of the, his great, extraordinary um, works of art that kind of change arts in the you know for the last third of the 19th century. And um, uh, and Zola is one of the most important defenders of of Manet, and that. And that was there was a lot of rhetoric in that, and a lot of uh, potency and power. And he was an indefatigable um, journalist all the way through his career. And his manifestos are very always very trenchant. But I think the difference with Jacques is that a it's about something very very specific, and also the stakes are much much higher. Yeah, so it's maybe we should uh, maybe we should uh, just explain the background. Explain the background of it because it's quite important. Eighteen ninety. It's a it's hundred and twenty year anniversary. I yep. think. Yeah, um, and it is to do with the Dreyfus affair. So maybe you could yeah take jump off them there. Yeah. So in eighteen ninety four, um, a maid cleaning up in the German embassy finds this note. The Borderholes is called uh, a note, which is in a waste paper basket and it's clear well that's so 19th century melodrama isn't it, so <laughs> clear, isn't it? Yeah. actually and that's really interesting because Zola is always criticising the versions of the story that make it sound like melodrama anyway we'll, I might get back to that but um, she finds this discarded note in a waste paper basket in the German embassy which uh, is clearly from a member of the French army promising to sell military secrets to the Germans. And she hands it to French intelligence and they conduct a brief investigation. They alight upon a young captain, Alfred Dreyfus. And who is Jewish? Who is Jewish. Oh, of Jewish extraction. Uh, is Jewish. Jewish, and Jewish. In yeah. fact, there are two things about him that uh, I wouldn't say they kind of go straight to him because of that, but that they that make him seem suitable as, as somebody who might be guilty. The first one is that he's Jewish, and I'll say a bit in a minute about anti-Semitism at the time, but also he his family was from Alsace, and Alsace 
uh, is on the board with French, France and Germany, and in fact was seized by the Germans uh, during the Franco-Prussian War. So there is that sense that he is... Uh, so he, it's not clear where his loyalties might yes. lie. I mean, Alsace and Lorraine have always been contested. Yeah, that's right. And right the way for the next sort of 70 years, they're kind of flipping back and forth. Uh, so there's a question about his loyalties because he, there's this sort of Germanic part of his ancestry. And over the previous 10 years in France, there had been a kind of really unremitting campaign of anti-Semitic propaganda. Um, the, a, a principal figure in this is a man called Édouard Drummond, who uh, writes a book called La France Juive, Jewish France in uh, 1886, I think, which is this massive two-volume tirade about the Jews, and it repeats all of the kind of classic anti-Semitic tropes that they're that killed Christ and that uh, the, they're part of international capitalism yeah, absolutely the bankers and the super wealth and also so they, all these sort of classic anti-Semitic tropes that's right and also with the, with that very late 19th century scientific racism in there as well the idea that the Semitic race is different from the European race and it has cer- certain kinds of unpleasant characteristic genetic things so you can't get rid of mm. them that mean they, they should not be in coexisting with Europeans anyway so um, but this is a huge bestseller. You know, it goes through fifty reprints in the first couple of years, and it sells, I think, like a million or something like that copies. He then sets up. He sets up the League of Anti-Semites, I think, and he sets up a newspaper. Oh, straight up the League of oh, Anti-Semites. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. He's, he's not, there's nothing hidden about what he's doing, and he sets up a magazine called La Libre Parole. It's a newspaper in, in 1892, which is avowedly anti-Semitic. But there are other anti-Semitic newspapers, L'Antijuif and La Croix, which is a Catholic newspaper, which is very clearly um, anti-Semitic. That does. Sorry to cut across you, Dan. No, that that does say though that. Um, anti-Semitism was seen as palatable, was seen as uh, legitimate in the eyes of uh, those who were perpetrating it. That it was, you know, you could you could have newspapers that were openly anti-Semitic. You could have groups that are openly anti-Semitic. Um, I guess there was a there was a sort of a um, the, 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 the sort of, it was in sort of monarchist sentiment at the time in, in, in France. It was in Christian sentiment at the time in in, in, in France. That it was like it was it was normalized. I guess. Um. I I'm, I wouldn't quite go that far, just because actually I think the the rhetoric of people like like Drummond um, is actually that we're daring to say the things that the liberal elites don't want, you know, think are not acceptable. Which Sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah, it does really familiar. But um, so you know, even the title of his newspaper, La Libre Parole, Free Speech, is making a a claim that we should not be stopped from saying things like this. So I I actually don't think those sentiments were sort of respectable, polite society sentiments, but certainly they they tapped into a lot of kind of latent anti-Semitism that was around in in French culture. And there was a series of things, uh, events that, 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 that... journalists like Drummond and others exploited the Panama crisis. I meant to ask, is there the Panama Canal, um, the yeah. second version of the Panama Canal uh, yeah. is is rumbling on in the background and all the sort of the yeah, well, nefarious a, affairs? There's or... a big scandal that emerges in the early 1890s about how contracts are awarded and so on. Uh, and 
there are bankers involved in that. Of course, there are. It's a big um, investment uh, scheme. And some of those bankers are Jewish and and journalists like Drummond make a huge play of that. So that appears to legitimise uh, the anti-Semites. And that lays the ground. It just lays the ground for the Dreyfus affair. So basically, they, they arrest uh, Alfred Dreyfus uh, based on very little. They, they get him to write out, they, get him, they dictate to him the contents of this bordereau, this note that was found in the German embassy, and they decide that they think his handwriting was similar enough that it's probably him. He is publicly degraded, which means in the, in the, in the great big forecourt of the Ecole Militaire, his epaulets are ripped off and his sword is broken in front of him and he's transported to Devil's Island. Um, and which then, is a sentence of death, effectively. It, it, well, it's a sort of, yeah, I mean, he is kept alive there, but it's mm. complete isolation and it's, you know, he's... Yeah, you're not coming back, basically. You're not coming back, no, absolutely. Yeah. And... Um, and then it kind of goes quiet for a bit, uh, but then uh, a lieutenant colonel in the in the intelligence division called uh, Picard, he intercepts a communication. I think I'm getting this about right. Uh, an in, uh, communication to a major Esterhazy, which is a bit suspicious, and he starts to think, I wonder if Esterhazy could be a spy for the Germans or be leaking secrets to the Germans and he investigates him and in reinvestigates the original Dreyfus um, case and realises that the case against Dreyfus is is dreadful and and very poor. There's... Yes, we should be should be clearer than he's he was ultimately exonerated. Yes, absolutely. So Dreyfus was completely innocent and Esterhazy is the is the guilty man. And he tries to pursue it, but the army do not want to change their verdict, so they try and move him out of the way. And they, then there are some connections with a couple of politicians that try to, who try to raise the case uh, in in the Senate, but that doesn't go anywhere. And they go to Emil Zola, and they the family approach Emil Zola, and he writes a few articles for Le Figaro, and then apparently the. Uh, the subscribers to Le Figaro are so furious that somebody is trying to defend Dreyfus. He's politely asked not to write anymore for uh, Le Figaro. So this leads to, to Lahore, where uh, Georges Clemenceau, who's another kind of radical, radical politician that would eventually kind of run France, um, he sets he set up this uh, this newspaper in in 1897, and on the 13th of January 1898, um, they run on the front page. Yes, it's a splash. It's a splash. It's a splash. And a, in fact, Clemenceau decides to call it Jacques. So the ah, so that, it comes from Clemenceau, not all of the title. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, the, the very end of the article is a series of paragraphs beginning Jacques, blah, blah, blah for this, and Jacques, blah, blah, blah for that. But he pulls that out and makes that the, the title. And they print up 300,000 copies of it, and they hire lots of extra kind of newsboys to run through the streets selling these copies. And it does completely change it changes everything really it it absolutely infuriates the the anti-dreyfusards um and so in some sense it does a terrible thing it inflames the anti-semites and um infuriates the army and the the government but it really does act as a focus for the the left for younger people for republicans who 
who see it as this is actually an important campaign we have to get behind. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I mean, it's and it's brave, this. It's brave, this, because he is going against the establishment of this, going against the military, possibly the monarchy. He's going against sort of... Uh, uh, well, sort of uh, the, the money class, which yeah. would 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 interest, you know, and it's it's yeah. it's, it's, it's 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 particularly brave. Um, the fallout for Zola is very very negative, isn't it? Yeah. Well, he. I mean, what he's. I mean, he. This is unusually polemical, even for him. And he names people. He names specific generals in the French army, and he, you know, he itemizes. Pretty accurately. I mean, um, actually, amazingly accurately. Given the state, he got it right. He got. He, I mean, there are bits he gets wrong, mm. but mostly he's 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 got the right. The facts are in place. He's got yeah. the facts in place. Um, the the thing was that uh, that that, that Dreyfus's original court martial, of course, was in uh, was in private, and then uh, because Esterhazy was named in the press the previous November. Uh, they decided to have a court martial of Esterhazy, and he's found not guilty, and that's the thing that immediately prompts this. That was also in private. So what he, what Zola says, and he says it in the article, is, "I know I'm taking a risk. I, did, I dare you to sue me for libel, because he wants a civilian court, a public court, where all the facts can come out. And if the facts come out, it will affect the Dreyfus case also. Yeah, and um, well, the, the presumably the army is going to have to release what evidence they have, and it'll be revealed as being very, very insubstantial. Doesn't work because." he is sued for libel and in the trial I think the, the army's line is we can't release all the evidence we have because it's for, for reasons of national security and they just they address the jury and say if you you have a choice between the honour of France and its army or this pornographic novelist <laughs> and so he's found guilty and then there's a miscarriage or the the, the, the thing kind of is changed on appeal but he's found guilty again and so he flees to England yeah Yeah. and so um, do you think there's do you think there's a sort of an enduring relevance to JQ's do you think uh, it it still has uh, do you think it still still has purchase for us today oh yeah I really do and I think it's really interesting just just preparing a bit for this I was rereading some stuff about the Dreyfus affair and I, I was really struck by some of the ways in which you can poison a public debate, in a sense, and create the kind of polarization that you see in 1898, um, where, you know, I mean, there are, there are murders, you know, of people on either side. Um, well, in fact, no, it's usually Dreyfusards being murdered or attacked or hurt by anti-Dreyfusards um, because it does feel like this is not... This is, it, it, unfortunately, it's very Brexit-like. It's not a position in which you seem to be able to stand in any kind of neutral position. And everything gets sucked into that polarization and so people simply on one side just do not believe the facts of the other side and uh and the whole thing is fueled as i say by 10 years of anti-semitism nationalism and and, you know and you know i would say in very similar ways that you kind of feel the the all maybe 20 years of anti-immigrant you know rhetoric in in the press has 
poisoned the Brexit debate. So I think the difference... There are parallels, you see. Um, I think there are parallels, yeah. And I'm, I'm not one for trying to say that these things are exactly the same across 120 years of history. But certainly I think there are lessons there about how, how, things, how things can get really, really bad. And um, the big difference, I think, is that, in a sense, what Zola did is a sort of thing be very hard to imagine somebody, anybody being able to do now in quite the same way. I was wondering about that. Who, was, who would be today's Zola, you know? Yeah, well, I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, maybe there is somebody, but I can't think of, I can't think of who would. I mean, the thing is, if you get 300,000 copies of this newspaper, First of all, what newspaper would sell three hundred thousand copies? Well, yeah, yeah, and also would have that kind of reach, you know, because actually that's three hundred thousand copies, probably each one seen by three or four people. Probably by the end of the thirteenth of January, eighteen ninety-eight, most people in Paris knew what Zola had done. Very hard. To, I mean, even if it were a kind of prime time television broadcast, very hard to think that would happen now. It's also, um, we have a much more fragmented uh, kind of media to that extent, whereas, you know, you could just put the newsboys out on the streets with all these copies shouting Lahore and showing the Jacques front cover and people will, by and large, be interested. Whereas I don't know how you could do that now and I don't know who would be able to do that. One thing that obviously is really important about Jacques, which we haven't mentioned yet, but actually it's a sort of it marks the emergence of a, a very distinctive French personality, which is the intellectual. I was about to ask about that. Yeah, the engaged intellectual. Yeah, yeah the engaged intellectual, and uh, someone who has a, as as a, is credible as an engaged intellectual that shapes public opinion. That's right, and and it kind of is. I and mean, obviously, there are the, the the word is not invented at this moment, but it's the word's only been around for kind of ten years or so, and this is the shaping moment that where people understand this idea of a figure who is known for their their knowledge, their creativity, their 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 sort of intellectual acumen, making a sort of sudden intervention in integrity life. even. Yeah, and integrity as well. Yes, that's right. And uh, and the next day in Lahore, in fact over the next two days, they 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 print a kind of um, a sort of uh, a, a, an open letter and which is signed by people like Marcel Proust and Monet and Renoir and and so on which is again criticizing um failings in the in the the handling of the Dreyfus uh trial and that is referred to it wasn't referred to quite the time but it was referred to as the manifesto of the intellectuals and it starts to really get that notion uh into play so now of course in in Britain we don't have any intellectuals. I mean, really sick of experts. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, we don't, and we don't seem to have the. It's never quite had that currency. Russell, yeah. maybe Bertrand Russell, probably. Yeah, that's probably the best. Last, maybe I think. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and there would be sort of people, I suppose, like A.G.P. Taylor, who might have, mm. you know, but again, not that sense of also what Foucault. Mary was. Beard, perhaps today. Yeah. Yes, but I don't know whether. She has the authority in most people's eyes. Do you know what I mean? Whereas I think there was a certain sense of of Zola as, I mean, certainly. Yeah, he had an authority. Yeah, yeah but I mean, and lots of people. Or a moral authority, I guess. 
for some people and yeah. then for other people he had the opposite of moral yeah. authority because he was the great pornographer and the the Italian they used to call him because of course he was his, his, his parents he was of Italian extraction yeah. yeah and and you know and people thought that La Debaclo was far too sympathetic to the Germans so they basically lots of people thought he was a traitor and and, and so on and anti-Catholic as well, all those sorts of things. But nonetheless, he's, he's ticking all the boxes, status. really. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but he had that status. But it, there's something very specific as well about the intellectual, and this is where Bertrand Russell does really fit into that. That what Foucault calls the general intellectual. So it's the sort of the public figure who would be called upon to talk about kind of anything. You know, an event in the news, a new Netflix show. You know, a kind of there. A new book has come out. You phone up. Jean-Paul Sartre obviously not Netflix but you know Jean-Paul Sartre absolutely had that sense that he was always in the press talking about anything at all uh, and again I don't know that we quite have that that mm. sort of thing yeah so he's um, so this this I mean this is a huge personal cost for him yes he goes on the lamb effectively yeah he goes on the lamb he lives in England for a period I think yeah a year or so year or so I mean do you know much about that period that little interregnum yeah well he so he he lived in Sorts of funny little places like Adelston and Weybridge and um, near Crystal Palace, I think he was. And he was very unhappy, very lonely. He was writing uh, his book, Fecondite, at the time, uh, which is a dreadful book. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> Wouldn't be your favourite, no. It wasn't a good uh, moment for him creatively. And he was, uh, obviously, there, there was a lot of um, concern that. That Britain might, if they just found out he was there, they they could respond to an extradition request from France. So he has to sort of go in disguise. Well, not really in disguise. He goes under pseudonyms, very poor pseudonyms that he's got. His publisher. Emile Bola. Yeah. Well, it's sort of <laughs> the um his publisher keeps sort of saying, you know, after you know, don't talk too much. You don't want people to. You know, don't want people to know you're French, but he spends his whole time complaining about the food and saying you can't get a well cut suit anywhere and wearing his Legion d'honneur. And you kind of think, how much more French <laughs> could you be? But um, he, one thing that's really interesting is he uh, he was a kind of amateur photographer, and this was one of his, the periods where he, one of the things he did was he took lots of photographs of the this sort of area around sort of south. Uh, southwest of London, I guess it is, and, it, and they've been published as well, which is a kind of sweet thing. And then he's brought, he comes back uh, when the retrial of uh, Dreyfus is announced, and technically he's supposed to be tried again, but they keep postponing it until uh, until Dreyfus is uh, pardoned. In fact, it may even be when Dreyfus is found not guilty that uh, that they drop the case against him. But then of course he's um he is possibly murdered by anti Dreyfusites. Yes, I'm um, so um this is uh, the sort of the the, the, the in game I guess for uh, Zola. He's uh, there's a uh, there's uh, I guess a lot of ambiguity about the circumstances of his death. Mm. It was something to do with uh, carbon monoxide poisoning. Yeah, the, the his chimney is blocked at the top. It's kind of capped off, and uh, so basically the smoke enters the room and uh, he dies of carbon monoxide poisoning. And it, the evidence for him being murdered is pretty weak. Somebody in the early fifties recalls somebody in the twenties on the deathbed claiming to have killed. Zola. Um, 
But on the other hand, the kind of the the, the scale of the polarization and the scale of the feelings at the time. You wouldn't be surprised. It, it wouldn't it's certainly not impossible to imagine. Yeah, so um so then how to bring things to a uh, sort of conclusion. I mean, I think what I want to ask about is sort of the sort of enduring relevance of Zola. Um, but maybe just sort of, you know, sort of Zola's brand of literature is naturalism or even naturalist generally. I mean, where is where is naturalism today? I mean, is it now something that is just a period piece uh, or has it been overtaken by events? I mean, in, you know, for even in the early twentieth century, we have sort of the modernist rejection of naturalism. Mm. Um, but I mean, you, you're still you're still a well, I mean, you're a scholar of Zola, mm. but you're also a fan of Zola. Uh, yeah, I mean, I am in in the way that you know, I'm a fan of Chekhov. I don't necessarily think you should write plays like Chekhov now. Um, I think I think I'd say a, a couple of things. I mean, one when you, when you talk about the modernist rejection of of naturalism. Um, in some ways, I think naturalism is the beginning of modernism. Uh, so rather than it being something that's rejected, it sort of invents modernism. So you think sort of modernism is like, a, sort of like the, say, Joyce and uh, Proust are intensifications of naturalism, perhaps, rather than complete yeah, breaks? At least they take certain aspects of it, which may just be a sort of, you know, an experiment with form, a certain relationship to the public, um, you know, a tendency to write manifestos and this sort of thing. And then you can fill other fill it with other contents. And within that, yeah, there's an absolute rejection of, of naturalism. But nonetheless, the template is there uh, and laid by certainly in the theatre, maybe more than in the naturalist novels, but in the theatre, naturalism, I think, is shows how modernism can work. The, the thing with Zola is he is, for somebody who writes so much about uh, about the novel and culture and politics, the one thing he never does is really explain what, um, what the form of a naturalist novel should be. And what I think that means is that he, I think he effectively thinks the naturalist novel is sort of aesthetically formless in a sense. I mean, that's not possible and probably he'd accept that isn't possible but i think he really just thinks all i'm doing is responding to nature and setting up my experiment so if there's form it's the form of an experiment it's not the form of some sort of aesthetic ideal yeah. and you, you can see a line there to someone like brecht then who does all this sort of experiments in alienation yes yeah. yeah i think you you could and you can you can actually see that trace through a lot of modernist work but but what i do think that means is that um even though he saw his novels as being not not sort of operating to a kind of formal template we could probably look at them and go, actually, you know what, there are these motifs and stylistic ticks that you have uh, that run through a lot of uh, a lot of his novels. And what that means, I think, is that actually we need to sort of understand that naturalism needs to be kind of disaggregated because there are certain beliefs that contingently came together in the form of a naturalist novel or naturalist theatre in the 1880s and 1890s, that actually you don't necessarily need those to go together. You don't need, for example, necessarily to have resemblances, the key theatrical method of representation, if you want to retain the scientific model of the world, for example, 
and I think what you find certainly in theatre is there are actually there are lots of fragments of the naturalist project project in a huge range of different theatrical styles, each of which would say they were rejecting naturalism. So to that extent, I think naturalism is kind of still with us and very important in you know a belief that you should be representing the world, that you should investigate fearlessly the taboos of the world, that you should intervene in the world somehow to make it better, uh, that you might well be informed by science. There's a lot of lot of theatre and a lot of fiction around like that at the moment. Um, and I think all of those thoughts separated out, you find in, in a massive range of, of non- Conventionally naturalistic work. Yeah, I'm. I'm wondering, like, do you where do you see, do you see examples of naturalism where it has currency today? I mean, the one thing that springs to mind, I think, to me, might be so something like, uh, off the top of my head, The Wire, which is very much in the tradition of the sort of the political novel. I mean, I think the sort of the creator of The Wire is it uh, David Simon. He's he very much sees it as a sort of a a novel in televisual form. I think you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, the other thing is that you know, there's a kind of. Um, it's a coincidence of historical timing, which is, you know, that, that naturalist um, theatre basically properly works out how it, how, how it can function in in the late 1880s. Stanislavski starts to generate his approach to, to acting in the 1890s. So this is the sort of protogenitor of the method form. That's right. And, and then the 1890s is also the period where cinema basically comes into its own. And so, and cinema kind of, as you know, by the 1920s, 1930s, has begun to take on a lot of naturalism, certainly in terms of acting, but actually in terms of narrative construction and so on. And then television gets invented in the sort of 1930s, and that takes on a lot of film language. So actually, you end naturalism, which starts as this really kind of niche art theatre movement in the on the suburbs of. Paris in 1887 ends up kind of dominating certainly Britain and America in terms of its its television and I th- and actually I think you're right, absolutely right things like The Wire uh, completely have that kind of 19th century novel that sense of the sprawl of it the totality of society yeah, yeah. exactly and and also quite rigorously working through a social problem to investigate how it can be um, how, you know what the ramifications of it, almost what the logical consequences of a set of actions might be. So you think that? I mean, can you say that? I know. Does naturalism have a future? Do you think? Well, yeah. I mean, I think, as I say, in this disaggregated form, it does seem to, and that's partly perhaps because we're still in the world that was invented in the end of the nineteenth century, and so it mm. still responds somehow to the way we. Thank you for listening to The Well. Our theme tune is Love the Government by Il Papa Giraffe and is licensed under Creative Commons. You can follow us on iTunes or your preferred podcast app. Long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government, the government, love the government.